VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, September the 18th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Let's get the week off to a flying start. That requires your participation. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26. Well, it was a blazing hot weekend in this neck of the woods on Saturday and Sunday. Really quite muggy for the middle of September. But we're lucky to see that what was Hurricane Lee when it made landfall in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia was post-tropical storm Lee. No major infrastructure loss. No loss of life has been reported. Uh, some, of course, there was hundreds of thousands of people without power. Most have been restored at this point, and th- this province basically unscathed with the remnants of post-tropical storm Lee. Good news. All right. So for all you Blue Jays fans out, there's nothing beats September baseball. And all the teams that are in the hunt hoping to continue to be playing baseball in October. But the Blue Jays' roller coaster is unbelievable. Swept by the Rangers and they sweep the Red Sox. They have a day off today, thankfully, before they begin a three-game set against the Bronx Bombers, the New York Yankees. That begins tomorrow. And a quick interesting note on baseball. It was on this date in 1994 that Ken Burns' documentary miniseries, Baseball premiered on PBS, actually won an Emmy for Outstanding Informational Series. If you haven't seen it and you're a baseball fan, absolutely a must-watch. Ken Burns, baseball. All right, and in it for two, we've talked about the fact that Canada's men's basketball team is qualified for the upcoming Paris Olympics. Canada's women's volleyball team trying to accomplish exactly that as well. They're playing in an international event, two pools of eight teams. The top two teams of both pools advance directly to the Paris Olympics. They're one and one. They play Serbia early tomorrow morning, so fingers crossed for them. And sticking with athletics, before we get to some of your topics... Six times uh, Andre de Grasse has won an Olympic medal, including the 2020 200-meter gold medal. Over the weekend, he won his very first Diamond League title at the Prefontaine Classic in Eugene, Oregon. This is a major event. He's had a bit of a rough summer, not the results that we're used to seeing from DeGrasse. Struggled with some health-related matters, but he won the 200 meters. So that puts him in good stead now that he says he's healthy. And, of course, when healthy, DeGrasse is a world beater. It's the first time Canada's won a Diamond League champion since shot putter Dylan Armstrong did exactly that back in 2011. Okay. All right, so sadly, we've seen the reports that the search for the fourth fisherman lost when the fishing, a commercial fishing vessel, sank off Florida Lee last week. Two bodies were recovered. One man was rescued, and they've called off the search after they say what was an exhaustive search over, what is it, 500 nautical square miles, aerial searches, ground searches, searches below and above the water. So there's going to be an investigation between Transport Canada and Workplace NL to try to determine the cause, but extraordinarily sad stuff. And once again... When the loss like that comes to pass, the entirety of the province grieves, I think, because we all have some relationship with the merciless North Atlantic. And on that front, there was a national search and rescue conference here in St. John's over the weekend. And we've had many conversations. We've seen public inquiries, judicial inquiries into ground search and rescue. But to know that in Labrador, there's not even one single lifeboat station on the coast. 
So the federal government, for some reason, can't wrap their mind around how that is such a big problem. So even if you hear from Todd Russell, of course, from Nunatukovit, and his nephew, Mark Russell, and his buddy, Joey Jenkins, they got lost on September the 17th of 2021. No distress calls were ever received, but with no search and rescue capacity, there's never been a coherent or a cogent argument from the federal liberals or the federal government, period, as to why there isn't a fully operational search and rescue base at Five Wing Goose Bay. Just imagine the expansive coast, the risks associated with the waters off Labrador, no search and rescue capacity. It's not that long ago that there wasn't even ground search and rescue in some northern coastal communities. Cartwright, Mary's Harbor, and Fort Toe, now we do indeed have ground search and rescue established in those areas, but it's an important matter that I've brought up many, many times, but certainly that's up for conversation. If you are either Mr. Russell, if you're listening this morning, or someone living in Labrador, we can have that conversation. Also, and it's not my money to spend, but you wonder whether or not it's ever going to be mandated, whether it be by Transport Canada federally or provincially, for people on the water, fishermen I think in particular, to use the emergency position indicating radio beacon, the EPIRBs. Not extraordinarily expensive. We do know that on the heels of the loss of uh, Russell and Jenkins, that the Labrador Shrimp Company, for instance, they put an EPIRB on every single one of their vessels so that when we know where you are, it certainly heightens the possibility or the likelihood of finding you and hopefully finding you alive before it's too late. So search and rescues on the agenda today if you are so inclined. Sticking with Labrador, this was always really quite a bizarre story. So apparently a consultant had floated the idea of a pipeline from Labrador to the island carrying hydrogen. It just felt like throwing neutrons away. That doesn't even make sense to me. Now, I'm not an electrical engineer or, or no sort of expert in any form here, but it never made any sense. When I read the story, I'm thinking, really? Is that actually on the table? Apparently, inside the province's energy plans, that is not something that's being considered. It was once again floated by a consultant. But I don't know how that ever made sense to even a consultant. I think that kind of questions the consultant's understanding of that particular issue. And sticking with Labrador, you know, we spoke with CEO of Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, Jennifer Williams, here on this program a couple of weeks ago. There was a lot to that conversation. And one thing that we don't hear broached very often here is the conversation surrounding the 2,225 megawatts at Gull Island. Now, I would imagine a lot of that is because the province, especially us ratepayers, we're pretty gun-shy of a big mega-project on the Grand River regarding hydroelectricity. But you know who is talking about it? And frequently, the province of Quebec. Just last week, again, Premier Legault talking about the possibility, the potential. There was some confusion in the translation from the French headline and article. But he didn't say we are doing it, but he has floated this numerous times. We know that inside their portfolio and whatever the complications are regarding 2041 and all the rest of it, as much as Quebec is the boogeyman for many people listening this morning, and understandably so, the unfortunate reality, or the reality, is that we're going to have to work with Hydro-Quebec on a variety of things. The Upper Churchill, maybe Gull, uh, the Labrador Trough and mining uh, opportunities. So you hear Legault and Hydro-Quebec talking about it fairly often. In this province, not so much. So we wonder, once again, if that's even actually on the table. Do you want to take it on? Let's go. Stick with energy. So we all know the issues regarding hydrogen wind, hydrogen ammonia, and all the rest of it. 
So there's a story that someone sent me the link to this morning, and it was a story regarding an outfitter and the fact that he says all the roads that need to be constructed, some 500 kilometers or 150 kilometers worth of new roads, and of course the 164 turbines on the Port of Port Peninsula, this all World Energy GH2. They say it'll ruin his business. Now, World Energy GH2 is apparently dealing with outfitters for what might be loss of their business. But the email said basically, why do we focus in on the minutiae, the smaller issues regarding these potential projects and the, jo- the jobs, the tax base, and all the rest of it? Well, how can we dismiss what is someone's livelihood? These are actually parts of the conversation, I would suggest. So here's a couple of things that we've seen just in the last few days regarding the appetite and the thirst for hydrogen worldwide. And Aaron sent these two links along to me. And this one says, all hydrogen stations in Denmark, in Denmark are closed. They say, we cannot justify throwing more money at subsidizing hydrogen alone. That came from the company's director. Right below it, he sends another one. This is the French city of uh, Montpellier. They dropped the order for 51 hydrogen buses after realizing that the electric ones are six times cheaper to run. So the question will be, yes, it's basically private sector money, but... We are absolutely actively involved as an investor here with the 40% tax credit available to these companies. So, as based on a call from Charlie there some while back, about a look at the books. I don't know if we're ever going to get a clear look at the books in full, but how diligent should we be because of all the construction required for roads, the possible issues with groundwater, if that's uh, an issue, birds, bats, and the like, you know, people's access to these grounds, whether it be for berries or hunting or whatever the case may be. Now, we are told that any required infrastructure on the electrical grid will be up to the proponent. Reclamation will absolutely be part of it. The so-called polluter pays is part of the conversation here, as put forward by Energy Minister Parsons. But... Even if their business goes sideways, there's a lot of time and money that will be involved in reclaiming the land. So the question would be for the province, yes, we know they're quite bullish and optimistic on this. Obviously, they are. They've been right there, front and center, uh, photo ops with the MOU being signed between Stephenville and Germany, the province in Germany. So what do we need to understand about the viability of their business before the work gets done? Because even if they're on the hook for re- all the reclamation that may be part of it, even if th- it's successful over the course of 35 to 40 years, and we've seen the breakdown about what a thousand meg- pardon me, a thousand megawatt project will mean over the lifespan, you know, significant monies. But are those pipe dreams? Are they real? What do we understand about the actual thirst for that product? We know there's an energy loss as it's transported via ammonia across the Atlantic. We do know that the alternatives are growing and expanding every single day. Technology advances very quickly, as we're all painfully familiar with. So, you know, dismissing an outfitter's concern, I think it's bigger than simply this one fellow's business, because if it does indeed come with all the downside, as he describes, that's a much larger environmental conversation. So, again, when you see those two links, and I've seen the hydrogen numbers and the growth that it is experiencing, and it's very real, but the question will be, for real, for how long before these projects are fully green lit and construction begins? So whether it be that particular outfitter, or even if you're all in and you think, we've got to be part of this. It's in its infancy. We can be a real global leader, which could indeed come with some R&D investment and who knows what, beyond the jobs during construction and what have you. But anyway, I'm going to take it on. Let's go.
Okay, so the House of Commons reopens today for the first time since June, and it's quite obvious what the top of the agenda will look like. You know, start with food. Look, again, it doesn't matter who you plan on voting for, the issue regarding the price of groceries is very, very real. Now, it looks like the five big CEOs of the major uh, grocery chains have been either summoned or invited to Ottawa. And that, of course, would be the heads of Loblaws, Sobeys, Metro, Costco, and Walmart. Those five represent 80% of the market. So the thought here now, apparently, is it's been told to them that if they don't stabilize their prices by Thanksgiving, then there might be some financial penalty to pay in the form, I guess, of a windfall tax. Curiously, it's not that long ago the Prime Minister said that, you know, that's oversimplistic. Well, something has changed, and I'll tell you what's changed is the polling numbers. The Liberals are slumping. Apparently, might be some infighting. I'm not behind those doors, so I don't know exactly what the conversation looks like inside the Liberal caucus, but... All right, so they go on to talk about some of the profit issues that many people are absolutely on the side of. This is a price gouge, simple as that. But even inside the Competition Bureau, which is an important place to look for the evaluation they've done, they say, yes, there's certainly not enough competition. More can be done to allow smaller entrants into the market, the marketplace. There's also big concerns with the big grocery giants and their control over the distribution chains, chains, which is not approached by any of the parties to get a firm understanding. We don't talk very much about the manufacturers and what they're doing, but let's look at some profit numbers. Okay, net profits for just Empire alone in the first quarter of 2024 uh, rose by uh, 90, uh, 2023, $92 million. Okay, that number jumps off the page. But when we talk profits, I think we also have to talk margins. Because when we get what might be an oversimplistic uh, look at things, we probably come up with some terrible policy ideas. Governments getting involved in pricing of groceries has proven to be a bit of a fool's errand. Look, I want to pay less for my groceries, and I don't care which party has the best idea. But is that something that can actually even legitimately work? Government intervention? And, you know, it's really quite simple. The polling numbers have led to some of these announcements coming from the federal government in particular. So, okay, that's a big one, and we'll have to chase it. Then, of course, the very next item on the agenda will have to be housing. So there's a a pretty stark contrast between, let's say, the federal liberals and the federal conservatives on this front. An announcement made in London, Ontario last week, what was it, $74 million, and it's not new money. That's already part of the Housing Accelerator Fund. So the big one, I suppose, and this is something that I asked of uh, Federal Housing Minister Sean Fraser, is about tax on materials to build affordable units. So they're going to back the GST out, and the federal liberals have asked for their provincial counterparts to do away with the provincial sales tax portion of housing to build these units. Okay, so we know the problem, and it's been there and growing for years. It's not brand new. But then you contrast some of the basics to what the federal liberals are proposing, and then, of course, with the conservative party, kind of interesting stuff. So unless municipalities and provinces build Uh, an additional 15% of number of units each year, they may indeed see uh, some federal funds withheld. Pretty extraordinary target. I mean, is there the capacity for whether or not we can actually put enough tradespeople to work to expand housing units by 15% annually? That seems like a lot to me. Now, if that can be achieved, let's do whatever we have to do. With this GST incentive for developers to get involved, 
How do we ensure that that incentive translates to actual affordability? Because yes, there may indeed be some concerns with rent control and vacancy control and the appetite for developers to be building units, but any tax incentive has got to result in pricing for Canadians, not profits for developers. They're in business to make a profit and fair ball. But that's going to be a real tangle to come up with some sort of formula that works the way it's intended to work. Also, Mr. Poliev is talking about NIMBY, the whole not in my backyard, and talking about egregious opposition from local residents. At some point, we also have to acknowledge that sometimes NIMBY is as plain as the nose on your face. But listening to the concerns of residents nearby, any development, industrial, commercial, or housing, has got to be brought into the conversation. So he says that if the governments, they fall prey to these NIMBY egregious opposition comments, that there's going to be another further fine on municipalities. Very, very gatekeeper type of stuff, but there's a couple of the differences between the two. So far, I'm not so sure that any of them have a meaningful plan to come up with the 5.8 million units need to be built by the end of the decade or in the next 10 years to keep up with the current pace of play and population growth, what have you. You want to bring it on. Let's do exactly that. And there will also going to be some attention to bail, uh, pardon me, to bail reform. In some corners, it didn't get a very uh, solid review, and that's Bill C-48. So for offenders who are charged with violent crimes involving a weapon, who've had similar previous convictions, the reverse onus provision is in there now, as opposed to the current way to a plea and petition for bail. The reverse onus is going to change the water on those beans. So, you know, you'll hear some of the catchphrase stuff, and the catchphrase politics is a little bit exhausting. You know, jail, not bail, and all the rest of it, but if you want to take on any of those big three items that are absolutely going to dominate this sitting of the House of Commons, we're happy to take it on. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to talk about a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Good morning, Denise. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How about you? Not too bad. Thank you. Been a long time since I called in. Um, I, uh, I'm calling in this morning um, based on some frustration that's been building for the last couple of weeks and uh, thought I would voice it publicly. Uh, my son goes to Juniper Ridge Intermediate in Torbay, and um, I guess I'm just quite frustrated with the lack of planning effort on somebody's behalf uh, with regard to construction in the area. So all spring, all summer, no construction was happening in that school zone, and now from the beginning of the school zone to where the school zone ends, um, there's a tremendous amount of road work and sidewalk work happening. And although I appreciate the work that's being done and I realize it has to be done, um, I have to question who's planning this stuff when, when every bit of construction for the last three years in the region happening in the school zone is happening just as the kids go back to school. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's always going to be the legit concern, okay? So we put out all the tenders. We know where the road work is going to be done throughout the season. And then to do the next match to the schedule of events, whether that be big events over the course of the summer, possibly that would interrupt construction or construction would interrupt it, and back to school. You would imagine that had we been given it the required thought and foresight, maybe just maybe that's done before we go back to school. I totally get it, and you're not the first person to bring this to my attention. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's it's something, you know, even one year out of the three he's been in the school, I could see, but all three, Yeah. you know, I also have a place on the Salmon Air line. All that construction seems to happen as soon as May 24th weekend hits. 
you can't help but wonder why some of this can't be planned a little better. And and, and as someone, you know, I'm in marketing and, and I get planning. It's it's a very important part of what I do, you know, but I, and I know it can be done better. It, you know, there's there's definitely regions that would be less affected this time of year than a school zone. And I'm sure it's not the only school zone affected. It just makes zero sense to me. And, um, you know, it's one of those things you feel like voicing from time to time. Well, and why not? So have you brought this forward to, say, for instance, the, the transport minister, uh, for just for some rationale as to how this is the way it is? I haven't, Patty, but uh, it's, it's building frustration. So I think I will. I think I will do just that. I think I'll reach out to Minister Abbott and at least ask the question because, you know, in my mind, there's just no need for it. I mean, you know, to say parents are always so stacked this time of year. It's stressful with the cost of everything. Parents are already stacked and, and, and maxed. And to have them have their kids late for school because of such a thing when and buses too you know i mean we're all sitting together and and waiting for 10 15 minutes you know for for a school zone that takes 30 seconds to drive through otherwise um you know just even the people working doing the work you know even to start at 9 15 in the morning you know it just doesn't make sense to me from a planning perspective it really does not i totally get that and i'd be curious to, to hear if whether or not you got a response from the department to talk about scheduling because part of the tender can absolutely include when the work is supposed to begin and when would hope, hopefully will be completed why wouldn't it why not? I mean, why can't that be written into the tender right from the get-go to ensure that the company that wins the tender is available to do the work outside of that, even the first month of school? Give us that, my goodness, you know. Let us get the kids back in and back into the swing of things instead of being frustrated. I don't know how parents do it if they're in an area where they have to drive their children and they can't bus, for example, who work shift work. You know, I work for myself. I have that luxury of being late. Many people do not, and I worry about stress on those people. To start a day late on your own part and your child to be late when it can be completely avoided. I mean, it's one thing to say leave a bit earlier. I did that this morning. He was still almost late. So, you know, it, it, it's just, uh, yeah, poor planning on someone's part, and I will certainly uh, catch you up if I get a response because I'm definitely going to write that letter. Please do, Denise. I appreciate the time this morning. All the best. Thank you, Patty. Take, Take care. care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Merv, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Thank you for putting me on this morning. No problem. I um, I was just uh, going back to your preamble there, and I just wanted to pick up on the search and rescue piece. If I could, uh, before um, I'm talking about the Labrador piece, I want to take this opportunity to extend my condolences uh, to the families and the friends and the entire community in Fleur de Lee and what happened last week and there is a, a processing process on polling at the moment of mourning and and uh, we want to respect that but uh, in the coming days there will be more uh, commentary around that accident uh, Patty and um, of course um, we can't forget the anniversary of the loss of the two young men um, in uh, Mary's Harbor Labrador as well so Lots to bring back those kinds of uh, of memories, and lots more uh, to to be said about it. Um, I had the occasion to um, attend the Saracen event uh, in St. John's at the Delta this weekend. I was there uh, with a um, a contingent of uh, people from Nunatuva. I've been doing some uh, engagement, uh, professional engagement, with the Nunatuva Community Council. Over the last two or three years, trying to build their contingencies, their contingency planning around search and rescue. Um, President uh, Todd Russell did get an opportunity to uh, 
to speak publicly uh, around the issues of uh, of search and rescue there. Uh, you summarized it very well this morning, actually, and some of the uh, shortcomings and, and some of the progress that's being made. And, of course, he certainly did acknowledge the fact that uh, there, there is progress, significant progress. We could never forget that. There has to be a positive piece to this. But, you know, it was only two or three short years ago that uh, a lot of the things that's happening there today uh, was void of happening in that part of uh, Labrador and, in fact, all of Labrador for that matter, but you know the idea of putting uh, three uh, ground search and rescue teams in place now, I mean, that is that is significant. And you know, President Russell made his comments uh, on the back of um, a review by Judge Igloriarty and his lawyer, who was present at the time. And I think that's significant to understand, uh, Patty, that the um, uh, those things happen and they should happen probably out of uh, sheer common sense and, and the way we approach things. But, you know, it just seems that things like uh, an inquiry uh, seems to really change things for the better. And I can tell you, without that um, ground search and rescue inquiry that was conducted by Commissioner Judge Gloriarty, a uh, retired judge, um, I don't believe that there would be three ground search and rescue teams in Labrador today. And there has been a crossroads, and 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 the contribution that came from the provincial government because of those recommendations, I think it's it's something that we sh- we need to pay attention to. And as we look at the. Uh, you know, some of the other areas where there is shortcomings, and if we look at the fishery, for example, and some of the accidents that's happening there and the call for an inquiry, I think um, we need to take stock of that, you know? 100%. You know, I remember, and this is not a new conversation, talking about the absence of search and rescue capacity in Labrador. I do remember uh, one point there a number of years ago, it was a conservative member, Cheryl Gallant, and she basically said, what are you talking about? Should we don't have that kind of search and rescue around the Great Lakes? I mean, talk about mm-hmm. it, just a base misunderstanding of what we're actually talking about here. So, again... You know, it's one thing for then uh, Defense Minister Anita Anand to come to Labrador to make an announcement about our NORAD commitments and all the monies that will be invested at Five Wing Goose, but no commitment, period, to search and rescue. I mean, that envelope of money that was announced that day was hundreds of millions of dollars, and we're talking about a mere fraction of that to have a real, fully operational search and rescue base at Five Wing Goose. So, again, for me, it's just simply they don't quite understand the magnitude of the problem. For sure, and of course, what gets worrisome is when Gallant's um, point of view becomes somewhat mainstream for a certain group of people. That's that's a concerning part, and especially the people who can make the right decision. You know, millions, yeah, billions, like thirty-eight point six billion for modernization of, of NORAD, and, and and that includes uh, Goose Bay for sure. But I, I think it's important in in the face of looking at at, at progress and progress is is, be, is being made uh, that there are two significant shortcomings uh, on the Labrador coast now. And one is, of course, a lifeboat station. Uh, we have 13 on the island portion of the province. We've managed to rationalise that in the various locations as well as inshore base uh, uh, programs uh, during the summer months. There are three of these. Um, none of that you'll find in Labrador. That that's a very serious short coming in light of all the things that's happening now in terms of the fishery resource uh, and the way that that's coming on, the way it's being executed and so on, and the number of people getting involved. And, of course, the the Goose Bay uh, portion of things. You know, uh, we're working, uh, as you might know, I think I heard Craig 
uh, I forget his last name now, on the, on your program uh, uh, last week talking about the the Congress of the Atlantic Mayors or the Atlantic Mayors Congress meeting in Labrador this week. So we're in pursuit of. Uh, of that group and trying to get a declaration of resolution on that front there too. So I think that would be, that would be significant in, in getting that. And of course we have the, the policy resolution passed at the, the liberal AGM uh, this spring. So, you know, we feel that we're so close on the Goose Bay portion, you know, for a primary search and rescue unit in Goose Bay, we, we, we can almost smell it, Patty. We just, we just feel we're so close. We're, we just think we're, we're close to getting over the top. And I, I hope that comes to fruition, you know? Yeah. And you and I have had the conversation, about policies being adopted at uh, conventions versus actual realistic, pragmatic spend or investment and policy. And fair ball. I mean, if it's actually going to be part of upcoming budgets and or allotments of monies, which it didn't uh, this past most recent federal budget, but we'll see where it goes. And I think we could just keep beating the drum. And you mentioned Craig, that's of course Craig Pollard, who was the former CEO of Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador, now the Executive Director of the Atlantic Mayor's Congress. Yeah, exactly. Apologize for... No, 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 no worries. I, I was just trying to fill in that blank for the listener. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. And so, anyway, we'll, we'll see where that goes this week, but uh, we've got some positive signs on that front, so we'll, we'll see much more. So, so there are much more to talk about, uh, Patty, and your program is not long enough to uh, to get there, and I really appreciate these few minutes that you've given me again to, to even just review some of the processes and some of the, some of the areas that we're trying to, to, to move the ball on this one. You know? Appreciate the time, Merv. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Let's take a break. Uh, You know, and it has been scoffed at in some corners that this week is well-being week. And there's a variety of efforts that are going to be put forward and initiatives discussed. We do know that our overall well-being, not only better for individuals and families and communities, but when we try to talk about addressing the social determinants of health and real action items coming from the health accord and what this week, what this week means, what's trying to be achieved, it can be scoffed at in some corners, but a healthier community is a better thing for all, me included. Not preach because I could be much more healthy than I am, healthier than I am. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, maybe we'll touch base on that. Then Yvonne wants to talk about a missing person. Natasha is also in the queue to talk about rental costs, the housing crisis that's happening nationwide. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number six to say good morning to the co-chair of the Health Accord. That's Dr. Patrick Parfrey. Dr. Parfrey, you're on the air. How are you doing there, Patty? Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on. How are you this morning? Great. So this might sound like a really fundamental throwaway question, but help us understand exactly what's trying to be achieved during Wellbeing Week. Well, the Health Accord's major statement was that we need to be aware and intervene in the social determinants of health and to rebalance the health system across acute care, community care, and long-term care. So this week of well-being is all about trying to make everybody aware of the importance of well-being and of the social determinants of health and how they influence our health. So there might be some confusion out there what well-being actually means. So are we combining physical well-being with the mental well-being, emotional well-being? Is it an all-inclusive term? I think you've got it. You hit it on the nail there, Patty. The uh, where our, our first message is, is that well-being is not just physical well-being. It has other dimensions that were equally important, particularly mental, social, financial, environmental well-being, and that our quality of life is dependent on 
having uh, having good good uh, effects in those areas. The second thing we're trying to put across, I suppose, is that um, that uh, the, the well-being is more than healthcare, and it involves changing social uh, factors. It involves education, and it involves justice, and involves environment, etc. And then the third thing we're trying to put across is that. This is not just for the government of Newfoundland and Labrador. It's for all of us. It's for families and the communities in which we live and the municipalities in which we are in. And the the way that government, small g governments, function in such a way as to improve the well-being of their families and their communities. We are, we understand our individual responsibility when it comes to my own well-being, even though I might need supports on different fronts, whether it be financial, emotional, or mental, or what have you. But give us an example of what it means for a municipality. Because you can talk about tidy towns, and they can have you know uh, active uh, lifestyle community centers, or what have you. But how should a municipal leader approach well-being for the community? Because in, in some part, we're hoping that everyone displays the self-responsibility for well-being. But what does a community do? So I think that it's very, it's very easy for people to understand um, that uh, that the personal responsibility for for healthy living that's the easy part. Well, why don't you exercise and why don't you eat better and why don't you stop smoking and why do you drink too much? So we make our personal choices around that. But for a lot of people, they're not able to make their personal choices because they don't have enough money or because of the place they live in or because of their their, their home situation or, or because of food insecurity. They're not able to make these particular choices. And it's up to all of us, and municipalities in particular, should be able to think about how the people within their community are functioning from the perspective of those particular social terms of health and from the perspective of loneliness and from the, from the perspective of being able to create um, group functions that allow people to avail of the amenities within their, within their program for various things that will promote their health. So I, I, I think that uh, one thing that we, we seem to forget about here, and we tend to be very negative about some of our, some, some of our health issues, but the, if the, the, I'm not sure people understand or know that when you look at the evidence, uh, we have the highest levels of, uh, of um, uh, life satisfaction in the country. We have the highest sense of belonging and having a, a cohesion with our community. We have the greatest belief in the security of our communities. Uh, we have the faith in institutions that, that they will give us good advice. So we actually have ingrained in us, we have the, the capacity to, to, to create change in manners that will improve our, our health. And then when you add in the foods that we have, like berries and fish and um, moose and uh, chicken growing here and root vegetables, etc. We have the food for healthy eating. And when you look at the environment, the pristine, beautiful environment we have with the ocean and the land, etc., that we actually have an environment that's available to us for, for, uh, for exercise that we don't avail of. So to me, the positive things in which our community is rooted in um, are, are the basis in which we go forward in, in trying to live more, in a more healthy way, both as individuals and, in both as, and, as, and as communities. Yourself and your uh, co-chair, Sister Elizabeth Davis, and all the subcommittees and the comprehensive work that led to the final edition of the Health Accord, we understand now, I think, more and more publicly about the social determinants of health and what that means with interaction with the healthcare system. Can you give us an example of what has been a recommendation or an acknowledgement has now turned into an actual action item? 
So I think that the the I, I, I think that in terms of the 2023 budget, that budget was a healthcare budget, and it was very strongly influenced by the the health accord, and the social side of it. Uh, there, was, there wasn't as many recommendations in terms of how we go forward with that. Hopefully over the next number of months, as we have this campaign on awareness and as we discuss plans to implement change, you're going to see this happen so that the government cycle of awareness, policy making, funding will take place. And the areas in which we, 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 the, the evidence suggests that we need to, to be able to go forward in our around childhood poverty, uh, in, in early childhood development, improving skills in, in youth, uh, skills and training in youth, health promotion, and then the, in the inclusion of uh, equity-seeking groups in society, particularly the Indigenous people, LGBT community, disabled people. Those, those four major areas are the areas that we can really have an effect in the social determinants of health over the next number of years. The province spends about $4 billion in the most recent budget on health care. But like off the top of the show this morning, talk about the House of Commons reopening and bail reform and housing and grocery prices and all the cost of living envelope items. When in fact, if we kind of change the conversation there from the political theatre surrounding it and the actual roof over your head that would be housing, the actual price of a loaf of bread, which is a grocery issue, all of those are directly related to health. How do we have that conversation to include all of those items and directly relate it back to not only the healthcare system, but the health of the community, health of the individual, and the cost of health? Well, I think that the the if you break it down to the cost of health, the 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 piece that's most relevant is, is that the things we're talking about or you're talking about just there um, uh, are part, what we call upstream effects on health. So those pieces of society that adversely affect our health, like like uh, poverty and food insecurity and homelessness, etc., have uh, have downstream effects that affect the he- that give us bad health outcomes and therefore affect the health system. So we've always been responsive to trying to provide health care to people who have been exposed to the adverse consequences of the social determinants of health. And we're really, if we're smart, we need to be investing in upstream in the social determinants of health to prevent those adverse consequences. In addition to your role as the co-chair of the Health Accord, you're also the Deputy Minister for Health Transformation. You know, the behemoth is now the amalgamation of the four regional health authorities. Again, if possible, some specific examples. How's that going to improve the healthcare delivery model? Because, you know, we can identify some redundancies, maybe save some money there or refunnel some money towards actual delivery on the ground. But then it's, I think, for many people, hard to understand what that's going to mean for wait times, to see a specialist or a family doctor or community primary care or what have you. So tell, help me understand what this transformation is going to do for me as an individual accessing healthcare. So I think that the, the primary reason for having a provincial health authority was to have a common approach across the province so that every citizen was going to, going to have access to better therapy for various types of things. And that included better community care and better hospital care and better long-term care. And the pieces of the uh, of the the new provincial health authority that are attempting to transform the system re- revolve around that provincial approach where strategic health networks are created for particular priority problems, such as seniors' care, um, uh, 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 the, the efficiency which the system is going through and surgery backlogs and trying to, to decrease the surgery wait lists 
um, and uh, provision of family care teams in communities so that we're going to get more people have access to a team that's able to provide primary care. I think that, that those things are moving forward. The, the difficulty that every healthcare system has is that it takes time to be able to get change. It takes time to recruit the appropriate people. And it, t- it takes time to put into effect those interventions that are going to have, a, have an impact on healthcare outcomes. I appreciate the time this morning. What can people uh, look forward to hearing or things or events that might be happening through Wellbeing Week if they want to engage? So tomorrow night we're having a, a, um, a Facebook Live um, session uh, with uh, sponsored by the Cardiovascular Programme and sponsored by the City of St. John's. We're calling it a time for health and we're trying to do something innovative in which we're going to celebrate the culture we've got with music and food. Jeremy Charles is cooking some tasting dishes and then we're going to have some interactive sessions between Dr. Sean Connors and a patient and Janice Fitzgerald and myself and a dietitian and Jeremy Charles uh, where we're, we're in effect trying to um, highlight uh, issues about food that are related to healthy living according to our personal responsibilities but also according to how society can improve our access to food. So that's that's kind of uh, the an, an innovative one that's at 7 o'clock at, city, at, uh, at the City Hall tomorrow evening. And then there's a whole pile of events that are really being undertaken by by various groups to highlight the diverse nature of well-being and to increase awareness of well-being. And at the same time, there'll be some government announcements about policy changes that are aimed at improving well-being. And there'll be further announcements occurring in the months after this week uh, in terms of how we change, how we're going to improve well-being in the province. I appreciate the time this morning, Dr. Parfrey. Thanks, Daddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Dr. Parfrey is not only the co-chair of the Health Corps, but the Deputy Minister for Health Transformation. A lot there. Uh, you want to pick up on where the doctor left off or change the uh, topic to one of your choosing? You can do it after this. Just like Natasha's there to talk about rental costs and the housing crisis. And Yvonne, stay right there as well. She wants to talk about a missing person. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number four. Good morning, Natasha. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. Um, the price cost on rental units, the argument is sort of uh, bad. Really, rental units should be based on a percentage of minimum wage. You know, people can argue and make comparisons to other structures that are in place across the country of Canada. But... <laughs> Everybody's struggling, and uh, everything's overpriced, and there's a lot of homelessness on the increase. So to argue, you know, percentage increases per year and everything else going up when the price of the cost of food is going up, the price of transportation, which is the driver for the entire mess, the cost of gasoline drove everything off a cliff. The only sensible thing to do to put a, a cap, a real cap, on that situation is base the whole cap on a percentage of minimum wage. That way no one gets left out. It's not 
it's not a problem. Yeah, but then, of course, you could have someone who's making a dollar more than minimum wage. How do you factor that in? And unless we're talking non-market housing, there's always going to be the possibility and the likelihood, very much the likelihood of an increase in rent over year over year because everything else that the landlord touches, also those input costs have gone up. I mean, look no further than the Bank of Canada, right? So I don't know where the solution or the sweet spot lies. You know, rent control will always come with an unallowable annual increase, whether the right one is 2.5% or whatever. That's the ones that I hear floated around in other provinces. But there's going to be increases. That's where the difference between uh, affordability, if I make 20 bucks an hour, but I live in St. John's, I make 20 bucks an hour, but I live in Gander. There's so many differences and complexities about where you live and what actually constitutes affordable mm-hmm. that one province is different from the other. One town is different from the ones maybe right down the road. So there's, I, I don't know if there's an easy fix here. It's got to be based on minimum wage. If they cannot afford to pay, you know, then this is, is all over because the majority of people renting are in that bracket. So Do you think so? Five 5% a year, 2% a year, but it should be based on what is affordable. Uh, that That's my only comment on that today. I mean, you, know, you can argue every way, and then, you know, ring increases in the cost. Electricity has gone down, as far as I know. Uh, that's a, that's a bonus there, right? Uh, the government not putting taxes on top of uh, things, uh, rental units being constructed. That's a, a ma- massive positive uh, for you know increasing the number of housing units available for the homeless because the homelessness has gone rampant in uh, Ontario, and crime goes up with that. Uh, everywhere across the country it's bad i mean there are university students getting into halifax that because there are no housing units are homeless going into university it is a bad situation there's no question yeah the university one for me is also a little bit unique like i'm not really sure how we've allowed universities to recruit and to accept students whether it be domestically from other provinces and or internationally to not be absolutely if not 100 percent responsible for their housing issues but very close to it because mm-hmm. they're operating a business as much as they are a, an institution of higher learning so That's you true. know the housing issue for universities is a little bit different than the general conversation regarding housing just for me yeah anyway. yeah it is yeah everything is its own bracket for sure but there has to be some parameters and something set in place to protect people on minimum wage because if they cannot afford to, you know, pay the rent, they're either they're you know going to a food bank, uh, they're either paying the rent, or and they're not eating, or they're eating and they're not paying the rent, and you know it's stressful. And you talk about some man on there uh, a minute ago was talking about uh, mental health issues. I mean, people cannot pay their bills. That's a mental health issue right there. That did cause depression. No People question. cannot keep up uh, of with course. it. Of course. Right? Yeah, financial stress is absolutely part of our mental well-being or lack thereof well-being. You're, you're right. Mm, so, But that's all I had to say. I believe it should be based on uh, one of the ma- – you know, there, there are many factors, of course, as you're saying, that determine where the housing costs are going. But it has to be forefront in the minds of the politicians, the public, and the renters – that there's only so much money and the end of the day it's the minimum wage that determines what gets paid and what does not get paid so i I think that should be the massive the the most emphasis should be on that factor Uh, for minimum wage people that you know they cannot afford you know if it's if it's in some places it's 25 percent uh, newfoundland and labrador housing does that up to thirty thousand dollars the person's making that they can 
get a, a unit if they can get one because they're they're rare too uh, for 25% of whatever their income is that they can afford that um, is, is pretty standard now they might go higher or lower or a percentage with that with minimum wage but that that's the type of line of thinking that's really required to stop people from sort of getting their toe in the door and they realize oh well in British Columbia or Ontario they're charging way much more than Newfoundland still minimum wage now, now what do they have to do they have to crowd slum housing and people all crowding and more people living in a unit than are necessary in order to override the fact that the housing is ballistically overpriced okay cost too much right yeah. so you know they can they can argue one way or the other but at the end of the day someone's doing something up there in order to make ends meet and it's usually you walk in the door there's mats all over the floor people are sleeping everywhere they cannot afford to do anything else for we, when we talk about food, the benchmark, the hope is that about 30% of your income is afforded to food. Uh, in the world, uh, pardon me, food is about 25%. In the world of housing, we're hoping that it's about 30%. But if you're making a minimum wage, you are way outside of that envelope. You can't make ends meet on 30% mm. of your revenue for housing because you can't find anything that satisfies that. So, and, and again, you know, if I'm living in East Vancouver, there's apartments that are over $2,000 a month for 200 mm. square feet. I mean, that's why the conversation just gets so complicated that if we don't break it down to bite-sized morsels and we just allow the 100,000 feet above sea level headline grabbers from federal politicians, municipal politicians, provincial politicians, we're going to come up with bad policy. It's just as simple as that. Natasha, I'm going to see if I can sneak on another quick one, but I'll give you the last word. Okay, no, that's exactly what I'm saying. You're saying the same thing, so that's cool. (laughs) Um, I appreciate the time. Okay, then. Thank you for listening. My pleasure. Take care, Natasha. Okay. All right, bye-bye. Okay. Will I hold Yvonne here, Dave, because that's, you know, just one minute to go? Take her? Okay, let's take her on one. Good morning, Yvonne. You're on the air. Hi, Petty. Probably won't take very long. Okay. Um, Anna Mae Galton, 79 years old, left her home in Calagros on August the 7th. She hasn't been heard from since. Her bank accounts haven't been touched like uh, she left in a red chevy cruise 2013 i'm putting a call out today to all the newfoundlanders newfoundlanders are woodsmen they're they ride dirt bikes four wheelers there's blueberry pickers hunters will you please look out for a red chevy cruise 2013 just take a picture of the license plate and call it in to the police. The police have sent out drones. They've sent out, they, nobody can find her. Um, the guys are out, now they're out fishing. They're, the campers are out. Um, the woodsmen are out. If they would just look for a red Chevy Cruze 2013, they may go into a field and see a car and say, oh, somebody is already in her blueberry picking if it's a red chevy cruise if they would just take a picture of the license plates and send it into the police the family is just you know it's, it's just awful patty it's just awful well hopefully people keep their eyes peeled for miss galton so it's a red chevy cruise and if it looks out of place or even if it's not if you want to take a picture forward it along so that it can be confirmed whether or not that's her vehicle and then we can continue the search from there absolutely 
appreciate Thanks. the time. Fingers crossed, Thanks. Yvonne. Thanks for the time. Happy bye to bye. Do it. Bye bye. Bye. All right. Uh, so, yes, please do, as per Yvonne's plea, keep your eyes peeled for that particular vehicle. Before we get to the news break, want to very quickly say good morning and happy birthday to Lillian Cran of Chance Cove on behalf of Bill, Edna, Marie, and all our friends and family. Happy birthday to you, Lillian. Let's take a break. When we come back, Michael, he's a psychotherapist. Talk about the lack of mental health services in rural parts of the province. And Andy, a business charge of a big sales tax on what? We'll find out. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this hour on line number two. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do so. So introduce yourself and what your profession is. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> my name is Michael Plummer. I, I'm a uh, practicing psychotherapist uh, based out here in Bonavista. Um, my wife and I moved here just a few years ago and started a little practice out here. Um, and I, I, I guess what prompted me to call is some of the conversations I've heard recently on your program uh, concerning mental health uh, and access. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm from the United States, so I was fairly new to this system here in Canada. But it, it took me quite a while, it took me uh, nine months just to get licensed to practice here. Um, and what, what's interesting is um, I, I think the public generally doesn't really understand the distinctions between, uh, you know, the different um, types of therapists. Uh, you know, we have counselors, psychotherapists like myself. We have social workers. We have psychologists, psychiatrists. And, and most folks don't really understand the distinction. Um, but uh, as, as is current, uh, psychotherapists and counselors are not actually regulated here provincially. Um, as, as I'm sure you know, uh, most uh, who practice, whether it be doctors, nurses, they, they have colleges that regulate them. We do not currently have a functioning college. We're one of the last uh, provinces uh, still working to regulate counselors and psycho psychotherapists. So as a result, um, we uh, typically folks who do the sort of work I do um, are regulated through uh, these larger regulating bodies like the CCPA. Um, so, you know, we talk a lot, I think it gets talked a lot about, about access. Uh, when I talk to people, they, I often hear that uh, most therapists in uh, particularly more urban regions are all booked up. Uh, they don't have space um, to take on more clients. Um, and uh, a part of, part of the issue, I think, uh, when, it, when it comes to accessing mental health is that um, counselors and psychotherapists typically in this province, again, are not covered under uh, most insurance. Uh, again, part of the problem is uh, that we're not regulated provincially. And you can't have one without the other, I don't imagine, can you? I'm sorry? I don't think you can have one without the other, whether it be widespread insurance coverage or provincial coverage if you don't have a regulatory body established. 
No, uh, it, it's it's difficult. Um, now, it, it's it's important to understand that the CCPA, however, um, th- their uh, their requirements are quite strict. Like it, like I said, it took me nine months coming from the U.S. Uh, and I had been a practicing therapist for many many years in the United States. Um, I, I had to go literally through two appeal processes just to get. Uh, licensed here um, in Canada, uh, and the CCPA, there, uh, I, I would say that their requirements are as strict uh, as most uh, provincial regulatory bodies. So it's not as if we're not regulated, but um, but it's certainly you know I think insurance companies don't seem to even want to have the conversation about covering treatment unless uh, you are regulated provincially. So So the CCPA, so folks are following along, is the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association. That's right. Right, okay. Um, So it, you know, it's... um, it's interesting. I, I There's a lot I will just admit I don't even understand about some of the processes up here. Um, you know, when when I moved here and was looking to just educate myself on how to, to get get going out here, um, uh, there, there was very little, uh, like the CCPA responded and, and they said it wasn't really their... Um, their role to sort of uh, educate on how to set up private practice and how to get uh, insurance companies um, to uh, to cover, uh, you, you know, like you can get um, registered with insurance companies. And it's difficult to know what insurance companies might uh, even consider counselor psychotherapists. You have to do a lot of uh, phone calls to sort of navigate that. But but what I can say is the need is really big out here. Uh, you know, I get um, I, my practice right now is probably split 50-50 between um, uh, folks that I see online uh, more based out of the St. John's area and folks I see in person. Um, but there definitely needs to be an expansion of access because some of the folks who come and see me, the only way they can see me is through, let's say they, they are working, they have an employer who has an EAP program, an, an employee assistance program, but they get very limited sessions. I mean, it's great that they, that they get that, but it, you know, typically it's only uh, about six sessions um, that they actually can see a therapist and, and as you well know, you, you can't solve some of these these huge issues that, you know, are trauma-based, um, very cyclical, uh, some very deep mental health issues. Um, you can't do it in six six sessions. Um, and then what what I find is typically the you know insurance won't won't pick up after those EAP sessions are done. So a lot more needs to happen uh, for access, uh, so much more. And many of those EAPs, and I'm pretty sure including uh, here in this company, it's a virtual offering. So give us an idea about how you operate your clinic. Is it all in-person counseling? Do you have uh, virtual offerings? Do you have a, a full complement of staff? What, is the, what does the operation look like? Sure. Um, so we're, we're called the Tamarack Wellness Collective, uh, and it's 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 basically my wife and I, uh, I'm a psychotherapist. My wife is a registered massage therapist. And, um, 
I, I'd say right now, uh, yeah, yes, I do work. Uh, I, I knew moving here to to live in a rural community, uh, I knew I would need to uh, certainly provide access, uh, uh, you know, through uh, virtual uh, teletherapy, and uh, so that that is uh, I definitely offer that as well as in person. So, so I do both. Uh, we have a we have an office, a very nice office here in Bonavista Vista, that uh, I, I have clients uh, locally that come see me from, as you know, uh, as far as you know, forty five minutes away for sessions, um, and then of course uh, I see clients online, uh, mostly from the St. John's area. Um, it, it's difficult to get um, your name out there provincially wide. Uh, so that so that um, you know potential clients know you're here and that you have space, um, you know because you know certainly as I said, I, I often get clients when they contact me tell me that everyone else they've contacted, you know their their uh, their practices are full and they're on wait lists. So um, so. Um, you know, this this is all to say. I, I think uh, there there needs to be uh, more of a conversation about how to get the the college uh, uh, functioning. I know there's one that uh, they're, they're working on it, uh, but uh, it really needs to happen here in this province. I think it will increase access for for uh, folks to get mental health treatment. Well, when we consider it's not that long ago we were using numbers like this. One in five Canadians are in need. Now that number is one in four. So whether it be with the, you know, the social work vacancies that we've been talking about, uh, the psychology concerns that we've heard voiced very, very clearly by psychologists in the province, we know a wait list to see a psychiatrist is extraordinarily long, even considering the immediacy of the need, continuity of care. So if we're talking about any accredited professional that can indeed be of service, can be a support for someone who's in need, expanding it however we have to do it. So if the CCPA has strict guidelines for accreditation and it was required the nine months for your license to be approved in this province, if that's the case, even if we just, you know, exclude uh, private insurance coverage, to know that there's going to be some, hopefully, a, a nationally regulatory body created, and then, of course, provincial counterparts, then let's just move towards these things. These are some of the issues where it's not necessarily low-hanging fruit, but when we hear the need, as described, not only here in this province, but right across the country, whoever can be part of filling those gaps is what we should be actively working towards. And so I know things are difficult when we deal with governments and we deal with regulatory issues and it's a snail's pace or a glacial pace, but let's just get at it. So whether or not it's you or anyone else who's in a profession like yours or similar to yours, let's see that your services can be availed of whether it be out of pocket and or well understood and or covered privately or publicly because I hear so many of these types of stories, not like business stories, but uh, individuals and families that are in need and the inability to get it is crushing. It's debilitating. It is. It is. Um, absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, it, it, there, there's a, a lot of uh, tangles, I think, uh, in regards to um, you know, uh, getting th this sort of thing um, changed when it comes to um, regulating bodies. I, I know even Canada-wide, uh, the tangle is that um, 
my understanding is so so psychotherapists and counselors we have to actually charge clients hst right uh which is just nuts to me um uh and again it's because my understanding is that literally the government of canada um has um a misunderstanding about the role of counselors and psychotherapists um it was just recent that the C- CCPA tried to uh, get the HST tax removed, and, and they failed. Um, you know, not not uh, not at all because they didn't make a, a huge effort. They did, um, but um, um, you know, it's just crazy to me that we'd be charging a fifteen percent tax uh, on top of uh, you know the fees that a therapist needs to charge. Um, you know, for people to get access to mental health treatment. Michael, I appreciate the topic and the conversation this morning. Okay, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. Stay in touch. Take good care. You too, Michael. Bye-bye. All right, uh, Andy, you're next to talk about sales tax, and then plenty of time to speak with you. Of course, you've heard what I said off the top of the program, some of the calls we've already entertained. That doesn't mean that you can't bring up a topic that's completely new to the program or to pick up where someone else left off in previous shows. We're going to take that break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Andy, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. How are you today? Best kind. How about you? Uh, not too bad. I was uh, I was in the market for a portable sawmill, a band sawmill. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about there, Patty. I know what it is. And uh, so I was calling around over the past week or so. I got some pricing and... Uh, uh, I decided on one this morning. I was heading out to Harbor Grace to uh, to go pick it up, and uh, between the jigs and the reels, I found out a thing or two about buying a sawmill. Uh, I mean, this machine advertises at twenty six seventy five, and uh, the gentleman's run the business. Obviously, there's going to be taxes involved, and uh, but between the the taxes, and then he tells me I, I got to pay each freight. Well, sometimes if Usually, if you order something and uh, and you order it in, you got to pay the freight, obviously. But uh, and sometimes involved in buying bigger ticket items of the vehicles and this and that is incorporated into the price. Uh, but anyway, this machine come to uh, thirty seven hundred and twenty bucks uh, after the fact that he added on his fees and he charged me for the freight that he paid to get it in and the taxes and. Uh, so I was getting ready to leave, and I called him. I said, well, because I wasn't sure what type of business it was, and uh, he told me he had a small business, and he was selling uh, all Range Road products. So I, I was thinking, okay, well, this is a dealer here. So I'll, uh, I called just to confirm. I said, I'm coming now. I, I'm uh, coming with my bank card and my debit uh, me. Uh, credit card. I might have to put a little bit on the credit card or whatever because I don't want to charge it all on the bank card. And he said, okay, that's no problem. He said, but uh, he said, I'll have to, you'll have to pay my fees. And I said, uh, what do you mean? He said, uh, well, I got to pay an extra 3.8% anytime anybody uses a bank card or a credit card. And I said, by I go into many establishments and uh, and and buy you know bigger ticket items here and there and uh, first time I've ever heard of anybody tell me I got to pay their fees 
along with my own fees. Yeah, the bigger operations, they got it built into the price because they all do pay a uh, an administrative fee for debit cards or uh, credit card usage, so they've got it built into their pricing scheme. I suppose for smaller dealers, uh, that would be something they add on after the fact because they probably do different scale of business than the big retailers, but that's all built in. Everyone's paying that. Well, I mean, they're paying it, but uh, after the fact, when you're when you're given a price and you're getting ready to come and pay for an item, and you got a gentleman saying, "Hey, bring cash; it's better for both of us." Uh, well, I'm asking for no taxes then, because this is seeming like this is going to be a cash job, and uh, there's no taxes going to be paid on this if I got to bring you all cash in hand, thirty-eight hundred dollars cash. You know what I mean? And I. Uh, you know, I'm I'm paying fees every month. He's paying fees every month. Uh, but when the price is there, and then you got a thousand dollars tacked on to that to pay freight and taxes, that's fine. But when I'm getting ready to pay for something, if I'm at the cash register and I got a fellow telling me, "Oh, you got to pay extra hundred," it came. It will it will come to. Uh, he told me three point. Eight percent. He says only one hundred twenty dollars, but actually it's more than that. On thirty seven hundred twenty dollars, quite a quite a, a, a markup of uh, you know just extra fee that I told him. I said, by first I've ever heard of a company telling you you got to eat their fees. I suppose he could do what uh, most others do and simply hide it in the price tag. Period. But then, of course, if someone came in and paid cash, then they're getting a 3.8% gouge on top of the sticker price and whatever well, fees. Well, none of that's advertised, Patty. I'm looking okay, at fair it. enough. Freight will apply. That's fine. Tax and freight did apply. But uh, you know what I mean? Uh, for the sake of it, I I thought it was pretty snaky. Uh, when you're telling me I got to come and buy an item from a business and I got to bring almost $4,000 in cash. I mean, uh, you know, it don't sound like everything on the up and up to me. Yeah, it might be a lot of add-ons after the fact when you've got yourself convinced that that's the price you can afford, that's the price you're willing to pay, and then you're told, well, there's more. I get it. I understand the concern. Well, so did you buy it? For everybody to know that, I mean, these things are advertised at a little over $2,500, and uh, when he gets you on the hook there, and then there's more and more and more and more. So just so everybody knows there that uh, and I won't put out the company name or this or that. And uh, But I, when I do get off the phone with you, I'm going to call. This is a big, uh, there's many sales reps right across the country. And I'm going to find out if I walk in their doors and pay them with debit and credit, are they going to be charging me their fees that they got to pay? They, they build it in, they bake it into the price. No doubt about it. They are not dipping into their profits or revenue stream to pay uh, something that they can get you to pay. That's fine, but are they going to change the price right when everything is agreed upon? This is what the price is. No, now. because it's already in the price. A debit. Oh, no, it's, sorry, it's an extra $130. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're not going to do that. Yeah, but look, I think if you have a look at what some of these, some of the small print signs and stuff that are in a variety of businesses, they tell you that 
a few ask they'll say yes there's absolutely fee because it wasn't that long ago there was big business uproar about an increase coming to these types of fees and they said the the loud part out loud we charge our customers to cover that that fee so that's the basics and i you know if this is a heads up to somebody then fair enough so someone's saying all debit and credit card providers state in their policy as a retailer you are 100 percent prohibited to pass the fees direct onto the consumer in any form of any fees or additional charges it's illegal to add the fee on top right because that's where they put it in the price tag right that's the yeah, point this fellow didn't yes, no that. i know i heard that part andy uh anything else before we say goodbye well, basically, you just confirmed that he broke the law this morning by telling me I had to pay for it. There's the consumer complaints uh, in this province are at the Department of Service NL. Uh, so all consumer complaints can be lodged there formally if you're so inclined. No, but what you just stated there, where did you get that information? Someone just sent me an email on it. I'm reading out of the corner of my eye while I listen to you. Okay, so therefore, that is against the law what he did. Therefore, if I was you and uh, felt like following up on this, so you want to make a consumer complaint in this province, the Department of Service NL is where that can be done. Uh, could I stay on the line and get that copy of that uh, statement that you just well, it's, I mean, it's a random listener. I don't know if this is letter of the law or what have you, but I suppose if you make this formal complaint, you'll be told one way or the other whether or not it's something that they can investigate or anything can be done about it. So that's what I would do. I would deal with service NL. You all definitely. I appreciate it. And uh, anyway, I can stay on the line there and get okay. the information that Sure, Andy, I'm going to put you on hold. Dave's going to give me contact info. Thanks very much, Betty. No problem. All the best. All right, David, he's on hold. Let's take a break. When we come back, it's the PUB. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. To get a response to our last caller, Andy, join us on line number six is Glenn. Glenn, you're on the air. Oh, hey, Patty. Uh, can you hear me? I can hear you. Perfect. Uh, yeah, as a small business owner, uh, Patty, that call graded me a little bit, so I uh, thought I would respond to some of the caller's uh, uh, insinuations, accusations, whatever you want to call it. Okay. So um, traditionally, uh, I've had small businesses for oh, many, many, many years. And traditionally, the way that the credit card companies used to set up credit card fees would, uh, there, there would be an implied uh, punishment if you, if you uh, charged extra to pass on the credit card fees. And this is by the credit card company uh, themselves, right? So what they wanted to do is they wanted to bury. They don't want customers knowing that, uh, you know, that they're reaping all this uh, money from the, uh, from the vendors. And so there was always a suggestion that if you um, charge extra to cover those fees to your customers, that they would punish you and withdraw the service. So my understanding is um, uh, within the past year or two years, uh, there was some sort of a legal case, class action or whatever launched, and uh, that this threat by the credit card companies was uh, was no longer uh, could no longer pass muster, and so thus uh, you know the vendors like myself would be allowed to pass on those fees and explain if we take your credit card, we're going to charge you whatever percentage, uh, you know some you know anywhere from two percent up to three or four percent depending on. 
how you have it set up to take credit cards. So um, that's the way that's structured um, currently, as as I know. Now some some larger businesses they still bake the uh, credit card fee into the price. Now for me, um, as a, can you hear me there? <laughs> I'm listening. Okay, for me as a, a small business owner, it always graded me uh, to no end uh, that you know uh, some of our some of our you know sales and jobs they were they were uh, particularly back in the days I used to sell computers back in the day um, you know it was very high price very low margin and and we were paying three percent of the entire price for a credit card fee so that is the actual sale price including tax so when you pay the credit card company it's not just the base or your cost it's on the entire sale so if it's a thousand dollars plus tax you're paying uh you know a percentage of 1150 back to the credit card company for the privilege of taking the credit card and of course allowing the consumer to get you know points benefits on their cards which we all love to get Sure. So, Apparently, it's capped at two point four percent. Yeah, it depends on where. It depends on how you're set up. Like different different vendors have used. You want small business, you have this Square provider. It might be more or less. And there's other ones out there, Moneris and so on, so on. So they have different. You know, it's worth as a as a business to shop around because it does vary from different providers. For okay. Sure. Right. Yep. Um, now we, as a as a business, it, it it really bothered me that we we're paying all this. It was coming right out of my pocket, first of all, and uh, and you know people were wanting their points, and then people would use want to use premium cards. Um, I'm thinking of uh, American Express. I think is one where they have an even higher rate. You know, it could be four percent, or because that's they give more benefits to their customers, but they're doing it on the back of the vendors. And so you're into really serious uh, costs here. So we actually discontinued the practice uh, in my current business of taking credit cards. We discontinued it 100%, and we haven't had a hitch. Um, we just we send our invoices by email, and the only difference is we're very clear up front. We don't take credit cards. We don't have a facility for taking credit cards. You pay by e-transfer. And uh, we, uh, you know, we actually have been able to pair our prices a bit by not having to pay those uh, those hefty transaction fees. The fees that doesn't work for everybody, and for anyone who does do that, they would be well advised to tell their clients upfront that you're not uh, taking the credit card because there is um, there is a feeling by consumers that credit cards are a must you know as a business owner you must accept a credit card which is not the case and this guy who called up uh, you know was like I you know I'm gonna pass the credit card over now and he's got to take it well that's not really you know it's, it's at your leisure a pleasure as a business owner whether you want to take the credit card so yeah you have it's best it's best practice to be upfront about it so there's no confusion I think that was his ultimate concern, is that it all felt very much after the fact. And if there's a, the rules have changed, the laws have changed, and there's a cap in place, all fair. And I'm glad as a business owner actually dealing with these things you've, uh, you've called. Even in the world of e-transfer, which is a very, very popular way to pay for one item or another, that comes with a bank fee. <laughs> That's built into the banking uh, fees that we pay, uh, whichever institution you deal with. And you mentioned American Express. Their fee is exactly why it's hard to find a place that even takes American Express. 
Express. For sure, for sure. There, yeah, and we don't get many uh, requests for it and, and uh, when we were taking credit cards. So, in fact, I even go so far as to, I've spoken to other small businesses. Now, we're a service business. I won't get into what it is, but we're a small um, um, uh, contractor type business. And I would suggest for businesses like, uh, you know, an electrician or a plumber or people who go around doing these little services to consider taking that route, get themselves a good quality program for doing billing. And uh, it really does eliminate a lot of this, you know, going back to the house and, and, and looking for checks and payments, like actually having to drive to the person's house to pick up a check, you know, a week or two weeks after the job. It's, it's painful. Uh, you know, when you're when you're in business, so people should consider that route. It works very well uh, for most businesses. I'm sure there's some exceptions, but for a lot of small businesses, even if you were doing snow clearing, for example, uh, taking payment by e-transfer if you don't if you don't have the cash there for you, good way. To- oh. Yeah, the connection is breaking up now, Glenn. But I really appreciate the info this morning. Thanks for the call. Okay, have a good day. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. And here is the uh, here's the update, last one on that issue. 2.4% is what you can pass on, which in times of inflation is impossible. Our industry, and this has come from the tour of the hospitality industry, our industry pays processing fees on HST and gratuities up to as high as 3.75% for the elite credit cards. There you go. Let's go to line number two. Let's take more to the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How you this morning? Not bad, I suppose. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, Patty, I wanted to follow up, I guess, with uh, uh, on a call that uh, I listened to last week. Uh, you were speaking to uh, Dave Sullivan, uh, who a lot of people would know from his Uncle Nerly blog. Um, and he was raising some concerns, I guess, over uh, the PUB and some a couple of recent uh, news stories coming out of the PUB. And uh, I think, obviously, as uh, a member of the House Assembly, and uh, I think it's important that, that, that we raise these issues as well, I certainly hope that uh, my colleagues in the official opposition um, are going to make this uh, uh, a good portion of, of, uh, of some of the question periods, to, just to try to drill down into some of the issues around uh, the departure of Liberty Consulting, uh, and also to question the appointment of uh, the new CEO, which are the two issues that uh, Des raised uh, last week. And I think it's important. And for me, uh, this is a very um, somewhat personal issue. As someone who, um, you know, I've said it before, you know, voted for Muskrat Falls at the time. Um, you know, thought I was doing the right thing, believed what I was being told by people who I thought were in the know. Uh, of course, we know from the Muskrat Falls inquiry, there was an awful lot of stuff that wasn't known and a lot of uh, stuff that went on that shouldn't have gone on. But a big part of what went on at the time was um, involved the PUB in limiting, in limiting their role and in, quite frankly, giving too much power to Nelcor at the time. Uh, and I, I think that there was a lot of lessons that should have been learned from the Muskrat Falls inquiry around the need to have good, strong, independent oversight. 
And that's a couple of the issues that Des raised last week. I just want to reiterate, I guess, what he said, that I do uh, share his concerns. I share his concerns around Liberty Consulting. We know that uh, it was Liberty Consulting that that uh, pointed out the real story as to why we had Dark NL, and which was basically, you know, um, not doing basic maintenance. Would we have ever found that out had they have not done their work? I don't know. Uh, certainly there was nobody held accountable regardless, which was another ridiculous story. But anyway, I, I won't dwell on that one. But they did do good work there, and they've done a lot of good independent work ever since. And having that strong independent oversight, I think, is critical as we move forward, particularly if we're going to be looking. And, and I, I don't know if we are, but, I mean, you know, we're all hearing about discussions occurring now with the uh, Upper Churchill as it relates to Quebec. We're hearing, uh, um, we're hearing Premier Legault talking about uh, Gull Island, so God knows what's being discussed there, who knows. But the fact of the matter is is that there are potential uh, mega-projects uh, in the future. The potential, I'm not saying it's going to happen or when it's going to happen, but certainly the potential is there. And we need to make sure as we move forward that we have proper oversight at the PUB. So the loss of liberty, I think, is something that we need to be concerned about. And as for the new CEO, and I don't know the man personally, I have nothing against him, never met him, wouldn't know him from Adam, seems to be very qualified. Obviously, he has a long history with uh, NL Hydro. Um, so no issue about that part. But I am a little concerned when you do hear about we're bringing a new CEO, and for the first six months, potentially, he's in a conflict of interest. There's concerns about conflict of interest. But all of it, magically, when six months ends, obviously, then there's no conflict. So, yeah. you know, we have to be concerned and at least ask questions about these things and, and, and question them. That's what Des is doing. I guess that's what I'm kind of doing. And I'm hoping, as I said, that my colleagues in the official opposition who do get the lion's share, of question period. I'm hoping that's something they're going to bring forward when the House opens in another few weeks. Uh, a couple of things. Well, formally, Liberty is not gone yet. They're going to stay put until there are, are replacement consulting companies brought on board. And you're right about the amount of time where the conflict will remain in place and the mitigation factors. He's also unable to adjudicate any rate application that was in hand before his appointment to his seven-year position as the uh, board chair. So there's that. On one hand, you'll have someone like Dennis Brown, the province's consumer advocate, saying this is what the board needed. It's someone with experience in the actual industry itself, which we have not had. So between that and evaluating and acknowledging and where a recusal should take place based on conflict of interest, it's a hard one to get to the bottom of because I think both sides, and I hate the both sides thing, but Dennis Brown's not wrong. Someone with the experience has been something that the board really absolutely needed. How we can manage conflict, if the implication, I don't know Kevin Fagan, I've never met the man, I don't know anything oh, about him. But if, if there's a way to manage conflict, because the board, one of their primary roles is, of course, not just about setting the price of gas, but most importantly, I think, is hydro and nuclear power related matters. Then, of course, you've got insurance issues and all the other things that go in front of the regulator, but that is the big one. 
I think, anyway, the setting of those particular prices. So how that's going to work, and of course the government will say, well, Mr. Fagan came through the Independent Appointments Commission, which was actually Bill 1 that this Liberal government brought forward back in 2015, even though they don't even have to oblige the three recommendations from the Independent Appointments Commission, which always yeah. feels like a pretty easy way out or a pretty giant Smoke loophole. Smoke Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty wild stuff. Uh, Paul, anything else quick? Uh, anything else quickly before I have to go to the break? No, Patty. Um, uh, I, I thank you for your time. And as I said, you know, you know, this is about just ensuring that we have proper oversight. And as I said, it's near and dear to me because uh, you know I got caught up in the last one, and um, and it's something I got to something I'll have to carry with me forever. And I certainly want to make sure as we move forward that. We don't make these kind of mistakes again, that we have all the proper independent oversight that we can have, because you and I know that, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, and in all likelihood, there's going to be more projects in the future, uh, more deals being carried out. We've seen how it happened last time. We've seen how things can get away from us when we don't have that proper uh, oversight and so on. And so we need to make sure that we get it right uh, as we move forward and that's what uh, I think that's what Des uh, was saying. Um, uh, that's what Mr. Ron Penny, I think, has been raised some concerns as well. Yep. Um, you know, they raised concerns the last time, and a lot of us didn't give them the attention that they deserved, myself included. And I'm not going to make that mistake again. When, when people have right. concerns, we need to listen. Government needs to listen. Mm-hmm. And like I say, I hope it's uh, – I have my colleague uh, Dave Brazel, whatever, is uh, – Listen there that they're going to make this uh, a part of their questioning when the House Assembly opens. Appreciate the time, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. All very best. You too. Bye-bye. Paul Lane, independent member of Mount Pearl Southlands. Roslyn's next. She wants to throw out a bouquet. That's nice. Then we're talking about the health of Marystown shipyard workers. Someone has a drainage issue based on development. Where? We'll find out. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Rosalind, you're on the air. Thank you so much for taking my call. My pleasure. This is Rosalind in Kingscove. I've talked to you before. God bless you for taking everybody's calls and everything else. But anyhow, what I wanted to yes, throw out a big bouquet to everyone, I just turned 80 on Saturday. Happy birthday. Thank you very much, my darling. But anyhow, I got that many messages, and God knows whatever else is impossible. Well, I'd never be able to do it person to person, but I'd like to throw everybody who sent birthday messages, uh, gifts, monetary gifts, you name it. And not only that, my um, sister, I got three sisters and a brother, the first time we got together with them, they come to visit in 12 years. So we had a great day. Anyhow, again, I'd like to thank everybody all over, whoever sent, you know, got and people dropped in and everything. Thank you. God bless. And thank you, Patty. That's all I want to say for now. Well, I won't take up your time. No problem. Happy birthday. So you're pretty popular then, Rosalind. Oh, I don't know about the past. Uh-huh. But anyhow, no, but I got, I got lots of friends and relatives and God knows what. So anyhow, it was an amazing day, I must say. I was, I was actually overwhelmed with it all. I'm glad you're here. You had yeah. a nice day. And I'm yeah. sure those who reached out to you, they appreciate the bouquet and the thank you this morning. You know, thank you so much, Patty. I really appreciate it. Anytime. I didn't know where else to turn. I said, well, Patty is the only one that I can turn to. <laughs> I'll take it. Thank you, Rosalind. Thank you, darling. Have a great day, you guys, and thanks again. My pleasure. Take good okay. care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, there you go. Uh, let's go to line number three. Good morning, Bernadine. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. 
So my name is uh, Bernadine Bennett. I'm the co-chair of the Mary Stan Shipyard Families Alliance Incorporated. Uh, since 2006, our group, uh, volunteer group, has been representing uh, sick and injured workers from the former Mary Stan Shipyard and their families uh, before workplace Newfoundland uh, occupational disease. Um, what, the reason I'm calling this morning is that uh, some people um, in our community and, and even some people we actually represent, um, and I should say that uh, to date we represent 140 claims of uh, former Mary Stanton Shipyard uh, occupational disease before workplace Newfoundland, and we can also account for 225 deceased workers already from that uh, work site. Um, what I wanted to clarify this morning is that um, workers, any injured worker has the right to uh, obviously put a claim before uh, Workplace Newfoundland, our provincial compensation board, um, and, and that's what we've been doing actively. But in, also, we have been actively pursuing the, um, the seal document that was part of the indemnification agreement as per the sale of the Mary Stan shipyard, a Crown-owned and operated uh, shipyard in Marystown. It was sold in '98 to a, uh, a large American company to facilitate the sale of that shipyard. The government of Newfoundland at the time entered into a um, share purchase agreement, uh, and that agreement um, was based on a baseline environmental assessment. So basically, as far as we can understand. The sale of the shipyard was going ahead with this American company, um, and part of the agreement was that the government of Newfoundland would uh, send in an environmental company, and they did, to do a baseline assessment. So that was basically send in, send in these experts in, in, um, in, these, in these sites and report back to government as to their findings. Uh, that baseline assessment, uh, like we said, this, this is our, our understanding only. Uh, these baseline assessments, whatever it contained, was sealed and um, forever to forever to be sealed. And what happened, um, so when uh, the sale took place, the new owners were well informed of the uh, conditions of the Marystown shipyard, the, the contamination, the grounds, the waters, what, what was first the first initial assessment was. And they were told not to uh, release those findings. Um, they were never to be spoken of. The said presence of the known contaminants were never to be spoken of. And these, um, this agreement uh, basically said that the, the government of Newfoundland would take liability for any third-party claims coming out of that shipyard based on that baseline assessment. That agreement uh, carried through to the first sale, the second sale in 2002 to another large American company, and uh, carry through again in 2018 to Marabies. Um We have been, since 2007, 2006, sorry, made four attempts, uh, four, four, four attempts to, uh, through ATIPA, to have that document disclosed to us, once under the representation of an of a Ontario lawyer. And we were never given the contents, and um, um, so we are no further ahead today. Uh, knowing what that, what is in those uh, so, in that sealed document. Just to understand, so this is a document held by, commissioned by the province. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. So let's take one step backwards, or step back. So, if I remember correctly, it's around this time, 
or about a year and a half ago maybe, where your organization was talking about even getting case diagnosis. So what has been the complication there? Because if you're, you know, your compensation will be directly related to whether or not you can prove it was a workplace injury solely or in part. So what's been the issue with people trying to get a diagnosis based on their own personal health? Uh, I won't get into the medical of what we're seeing over the, uh, of the workers that we represent. I will say that when workers do come to our group, uh, they are coming with a, um, most cases, a terminal cancer diagnosis uh, while under the care of a family uh, physician and specialized care. So as, as, I, as I was mentioning to you in the, uh, in, in, to do with the uh, identification agreement and the sealed document, uh, we believe that government's liability to these workers uh, it obviously include the workers, we believe that it extends to the family members because these contaminants were actually brought home. I mean, uh, that's, that's well known in these heavy, dirty industries, how the families are affected. And we've seen cases of that so far. We, uh, we also feel that um, the indemnification agreement um, reaches out into the community because not only is it a uh, occupational disease disaster site, now we have a public health issue with the families being brought into it and now spewed out into our community. And we believe that that would be evident in the uh, 13 environmental site assessments that have been done since uh, 2002 or 1998. Sorry. Now, I know this can fall under the regulatory bodies and the citizens' rep and the privacy commissioner and the like, but do I remember correctly, especially when we were going through things like asbestos mining, weren't some of these cases heard by human rights commissions? Uh, I'm not sure. Would the, not what sure. human rights uh, play a role here? Uh, uh, it, it's important to remember that uh, we have done quite a bit of lobbying in the uh, in the last 17 years, and we're a group on our own, actually. Uh, we have no representation uh, from any other entity. We're, we're, we're unfunded, but um, the... I'd like to just get back to the indemnification. Okay, sure. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, yeah because uh, that, that, that was the core of my reason for calling. Uh, the intake clinic process was when the, when the University of Toronto was called into, uh, into uh, do an assessment. When, when the tenders went out in 1998 to for a, a study of the Marystown shipyard, the only reasonable... Uh, a tender offer that we could see with the intake clinic process. And that's a process where workers come in, whether they're healthy or not, and they are assessed by medical experts, occupational medical physicians, toxicologists, nurses that are trained in occupational medicine. And this was part of the, this we believe is part of the indemnification agreement. And like I said, we're seeing young men that we actually put off two intake clinics in Marystown in 2009 and 2011. And we saw young men come into our clinic 17 years ago who were young, healthy men and who wanted to keep their information on file with us because they knew what they were going to be, what they expected would happen to us because they're seeing it all around them. These men are now showing up to in, at our doorstep 17 years later, still, still of employment age and have terminal uh, disease diagnosis, terminal cancer diagnosis. Had the intake clinic process been implemented here like it was, 
and Patty, there was a committee in place in, in, uh, in 1998, right up until 2002, that uh, that was their goal, was to uh, make sure that the facilitation of the sale of the Mayor's Township Yard went through and everything was in place, and the intake clinic process and the, uh, the medical uh, surveillance of these workers, gathering these workers and their families together to assess them, and I should also note that uh, the indemnification agreements that cover the Mary Stan Shipyard and the Mary Stan Shipyard group of workers, this is outside of the compensation board, which is why I really don't want to have the conversation about the compensation board, only to say it's been an absolute struggle. It's been uh, a complete, complete denial of good medical science, scientific and legal arguments. Uh, we are since 2018. We have refused to let, to uh, use the uh, review division because it is it is not in the best interest of the people we represent. Uh, we have a zero percent success rate with uh, appeals process. So um, uh, you know, for anybody to to tell these workers that that just that that is their only uh, course of action uh, when they get a terminal disease diagnosis is absolutely wrong. These workers, their families, and the communities are covered on the indemnification agreement. We want that document open. We want yep. to know what our workers and our families are entitled to. And right away, Patty, because we have seen an expeditious climb in a number of claims that are under our representation. We have been told by the chief occupational hygienist for the province of Newfoundland as recent as last November that the Mary Stan Shipyard group of workers are at their peak latency period, and we are seeing that now. And we have been ringing the bell on that one for 17 years, mm -hmm. and you bring up the human rights and you bring up the citizens' rights. We have been in touch with every entity in this province, Patty, and I can name I understand. it from top to bottom, and nobody Burn. has helped our group. Nobody has helped our families. <clears throat> there is a, they are basically self-legislated to pass the book. And, and I can say that, uh, I will say, Quickly. and I shouldn't say that we don't have any support. We did have a very good uh, phone call with the head leader of the opposition, David Brazel, uh, on Thursday. He did come on your show. What he was talking about was transparency, and we absolutely mm -hmm. agree. And he did pledge his support in public, as he did in private, to help our group get that document opened and to get an intake clinic here as soon as possible. Before you go, Patty... Well, I, I have to go, Bernadine. I do have to go. The, is that a free time? I appreciate it. I'm just a little bit late for actually a lot late for the news, but Bernadine, stay in touch. I appreciate your uh, your time this morning. Okay, there we go. Absolutely. Okay, oops, that was a little quick. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're going to be saying good morning to the chair of the Exploits Valley Renewable Energy Corporation. That's Ravi Sood. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the chair of the Exploits Valley Renewable Energy Corporation. That's Ravi Sood. Good morning, Ravi. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Before we get into some uh, project details, explain the size, the scope, and scale of your project. Because if I remember correctly, it's a much smaller footprint than the other three that have also been included in the groups moving forward. It is a smaller footprint. We're, uh, the, the project area in our case covers about 30,000 hectares. Uh, 
the portion of that that we're actually using in terms of the wind turbines and the industrial installations is only about 200 hectares. But we need that 30,000 hectares. That's the whole project area that's encompassed with the wind portfolio. Some of the other projects are up over 100,000 hectares, but also probably similar in terms of the actual footprint used, again, about 200 or 300 hectares. Yeah, if I remember correctly, on the Bureau Peninsula, Everwind is around 270,000 hectares of crown land. So, you know, the same questions for all of the proponents here is one of the big concerns people would have, of course, is water. And what reservoir, what body of water you're using for your project? So in our case, it's uh, Peter's Pond, uh, close to uh, previously used by the town of Botwood. Uh, and that's one that's no longer used by the town. And uh, our water requirements there uh, are less than one-third of what the renewable water resources at that site. So we're really comfortable. It's one, one of the sort of critical inputs to this whole process, and it's a, a great asset for our project that we have access to that water. Where are you in the environmental assessment stage? So the, uh, this is uh, the sort of critical part of uh, where we're at in the project, is, uh, and we've uh, started on all of what we call our critical path items to make sure that we can get our project permitted in about the next 24 months. Uh, some of these we've started uh, you know, in slow uh, before we were even awarded the project, and some of them we started in earnest uh, over the last couple of weeks after we were actually awarded the project. So critical one, bird radars. Um, uh, a variety of uh, just uh, you know marine life uh, and, and wildlife studies that need to be conducted over the next 24 months, and uh, those uh, some of them are dependent on the time of year. So you need to conduct them in fall. You need to do it winter. You need to do it in summer. And for some of them, they need to be conducted over a two-year time period. So we really can't complete them in less all of them in less than 24 months. And that's why uh, some of them we started uh, immediately after we were awarded the project uh, a few weeks ago. Who's doing that work? Uh, we're using a variety of consultants. Some of it's done internally, but uh, largely we're using uh, currently. Uh, we will bring in other consultants over time, uh, but we're using an engineering firm based in Nova Scotia, which has uh, in its uh, host of credentials uh, have been the firm that uh, permitted uh, the existing uh, wind to hydrogen project in Nova Scotia. So they bring a lot of experience to bear, and they are entirely Atlantic Canada focused, which is extremely helpful to us. The environmental concern, I just want to get some clarification. So when we spoke to Jennifer Williams, the uh, CEO at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, any integration with the pro province's electrical grid, any of that infrastructure will be on the back of the proponent. Is that your understanding? That is, and it's a, a subtle issue. Uh, you know, we had so many great companies. It's not a coincidence. Uh, as we've said time and time again, the province of Newfoundland has you know, in our minds, the best areas in the world to develop uh, the lowest cost, long life uh, wind hydrogen projects anywhere. And so it's no coincidence that we attracted all these great companies from around the world to participate in this process. So why didn't all of them or, or more of them get their projects? Well, uh, maybe some had better technical merits, uh, other had others had strategic partnerships, but one subtle but very important issue is that grid connection. And you're looking at the scale of the projects that were awarded, uh, the four of them, that's 12 gigawatts. That's more than five times the province's current power capacity uh, across the provincial grid. So let's say it's not windy. 
all of them uh, may need additional power at the same time, or certainly all the projects that were in in, in a immediate vicinity of one another. Uh, similarly, in the opposite direction, it's very windy, and you have excess power for your hydrogen uh, business. You may want to sell that power all at the same time. So. There is a serious consideration given by the province to uh, spreading the projects out, not having them in the immediate vicinity of one another, and uh, really putting it on the proponents to deal with their own issues in terms of additional power requirements or sale. Uh, and that's long duration storage, that's other methods used by different proponents, but that, that, that was an absolutely critical part of the process. And the company, insofar as what people call polluter pays, when the project comes and goes, whatever the lifespan of your project will be, your company is fully responsible for reclamation, whether it be taking down the, the monopiles and the turbines and the roads and everything else that will be part of your footprint, all of that reclamation is on your company's bill. That's correct. And uh, in my experience, uh, you know, we're relatively new. We're decades into the renewable energy business, uh, really. Uh, but once you have that infrastructure in place, it's so valuable to have those uh, those wind towers in place, to have the infrastructure around them. The more likely outcome is 25 or 30 years down the road, we do what's called a repowering, which is you install the latest and greatest turbines. Uh, you'll get, depending on what's happened with the technology, 10, 20, 30% improvement in power generation for the same wind resource, the same location. And that's, what's, that's what we've seen transpire in most cases. Uh, I am not aware of any large project which has actually been fully dismantled and decommissioned. And uh, I, I'd be surprised to see that happen in the province, but uh, we'll see in 25 to 30 years. But you're correct. Uh, that is the responsibility of the proponent. Help us understand the thirst for the product. Because, I mean, I've seen some of the numbers, and you're talking about 24 months down the road before even completing the environmental assessment and then moving towards the establishment of the facility in Botwood, for instance. So does this throw any cold water on the proposal? I read a story over the weekend. All hydrogen stations in Denmark are going to close. Montpellier in France has cancelled their order of all hydrogen buses that were in the pipeline. I think it was 51 of them because it's more expensive than operating uh, solar-powered or battery-powered operations. So does that throw cold water on the thirst for hydrogen? Not, not really. So the, the, it's a long-term uh, investment for sure, and there's going to be some ups and downs in terms of hydrogen demand. One of the issues plaguing the early adopters is a lack of infrastructure delivering that hydrogen. So you order a fleet of hydrogen buses, obviously you need the infrastructure to keep those fueled and refueled. And currently, because of the very limited infrastructure, even in those early adopter European countries, it's very expensive. And it is more expensive to operate those hydrogen-powered vehicles than it is to conventional electric. However, uh, looking five years out, ten years out, all these mandates where we see uh, countries saying all uh, internal combustion engines gone by year X, 2030, 2035, whatever it may be, these are, in our minds as, as power guys, like unobtainable targets. If you're talking about uh, two technical questions that need to be answered, number one is, all these vehicles go to electric. In North America, you have a few hundred million small power plants driving around the roads every day of the week. Uh, you're replacing all those little power plants, all those internal combustion engines and cars with batteries, which need to be powered off the grid. Where does that power come from? That's additional power that needs to be added. Number two, the grid infrastructure. No country I'm aware of has grid infrastructure that can come anywhere close 
to sustaining a 100% electric vehicle uh, market. So what's the solution? Probably a much higher percentage than we have today of electric vehicles, but also a large percentage of hydrogen-powered vehicles in the mix, whether it's primarily mass transport, uh, long-range uh, transportation such as trains, or it also goes into the uh, automotive market. We'll see, but there's no question in our minds that there is a huge long-term demand, and the supply is going to be very hard to bring online. But in any business, if you are one of the largest and you're the lowest cost supplier, uh, you can be very successful. And Newfoundland is the best location that we are aware of anywhere in the world for producing that product at the lowest possible cost and in large volume. So we, we are not worried about the, the demand for our product in the long term. Who are your customers? Because we've seen, you know, MOU sign with Germany and those types of things. And notably, World Energy GH2 takes most of the oxygen surrounding this before proposals. So where are you planning on selling? So the, the customers in the first case, remembering that our end product, uh, at least for the first many years, will be green ammonia. We will, we're producing hydrogen. And we've added a further step, uh, similar to World Energy and others, to convert that to green ammonia. Why is that? That can be economically shipped. And there's an existing global market for ammonia. Um, and we're talking like the forecast by 2030, by the time uh, all of these operations are in full swing, uh, will be on the order of 300 million tons per annum and of uh, for ammonia and these projects in Newfoundland and aggregate will be producing three maybe four million tons so a significant uh, contribution to the global market but not really moving the needle where's the the demand specifically for green ammonia um, outside of the fertilizer market outside of the chemical market you're also looking at uh, bunker fuel so that is a very high probability replacement for the shipping industry and particularly the shipping industry in locations where you have a green mandate to go to zero emissions. So you could be looking at 10 years time in Europe, all ships uh, docking at European uh, servicing European ports needing to uh, be on a zero emissions basis. One way to get there with their fuel supply is to switch to running off of ammonia and specifically green ammonia. If that happens, that is an absolutely massive market that completely changes changes the demand curve uh, for green ammonia. But again, that that's a, an existing market. It's an existing massive market, and uh, it's a uh, commodity that's transported 365 days a year, and there's an existing infrastructure around it. Hydrogen, that will come too. And the technologies will evolve there. It'll become more economic to ship uh, over the sea. Uh, but for now, we're, we're focused on green ammonia. I appreciate the time this morning. Ravi, stay in touch. That was a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure, sir. Take care. Ravi Sood is the chair of the Exploits Valley Renewable Energy Corporation. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, lots of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Tracy. You're on the air. Uh, and, and thank you, Patty Doyle, um, for having me. Um, this is my second time here uh, on online, and um, I just want to update you about the drainage um, issue on Topsail Pond that I have at uh, the oldest house on Topsail Pond. It's 88 years old, and my family has owned it for that long. And um, I last spoke to you on June 26th, and I wrote a complaint letter to Paradise on June 9th, and um, my um, grandma worked at Trapnell's Jewelry Store on 197 Water Street, and um, she bought this land, um, and um, she owned all the way to the Frog Pond at one time, which is the bridge. And 
Um, I've had real, uh, really big issues with the um, mowing my lawn because the um, the mower gets bogged down by all the the waterlogged lawn due to the development. Um, above me and um there's a lot of people that have had um it's not just me there's other people i've been told by the city that had problems so what i wanted to update you about is that um due to my diligence um uh, on august 8th the town of paradise the public works um fixed the ditch in front of my yard um, in front of my family's property, I should say. And um, they hauled away a huge truckload of sludge and they made a bee to the culvert going out to Topsail Pond. And um, they laid um, um, a large amount of big rock and they kind of tamped it down. And I I am very grateful for them doing this. Um, I think uh, the problem has um, really helped. Because for one thing, um, I had this continuous puddle of water on the side of the road at my house. And if I looked to the right and to the left, there was nobody else that had any water, but I still had water on the side of the road, and it's now gone. And also the public works um guys uh they were very friendly and just very thorough and also they said that um the ditch hasn't been done in a very long time <laughs> and i didn't even bother asking how long because <laughs> i'm sure they really uh it probably never was done you know this is probably the first time it was done so it just kind of made me giggle but um you know i'm just still concerned patty about um, the developer, uh, especially uh, building on Sergeant uh, Sergeant Lucas Drive and the road below Spracklin. Um, I'm I still, um, you know, I'm trying to, you know, get through this. As far as you know, it's like you know, sometimes things happen, and you know, um, hopefully we can make it better for other uh, cities, you know, like Paradise. Um, but it's just, it's very sad that that Tomahawk Rock is gone. Um, I arrived June fourth, and by June seventh, when I went up to Tomahawk Rock, it was nothing but a pile of um um gravel and um i'm just you know it's just it's interesting you know i had um relatives come by yesterday and we were talking about gosh you know in paradise you know widen that trail up to tomahawk rock and 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 that's really true they knew about tomahawk rock because they widened the trail because they wanted more people to see it you know and it's right by the bike trail and and it's you know it's it was kind of like a little scenic thing for topsail pond to um you know to um to show other people on the bike trail and now it's gone and and I, you know, I just feel like nobody really knew what was going on with that. You know, nobody stopped it because nobody knew, you know. And, I, you know, I just, moving forward, I guess what I'm trying to say is, boy, wouldn't it have been nice if people were informed so they could say, you know, do they want to keep it or do they not? Because it, it really would have been a nice little park. 
you know. Uh, very quickly key. before I go, to, uh, Tracy, yeah. what exactly led to the collection of water? Was there a river rerouted, or what exactly went on to cause the excess water on well, your property? Honestly, think it, it was the overbuilding uh, up uh, directly above me. There was a lot of building that has been um, built o- up there, and that whole ridge. Now, if you go across the Topsail Pond, you can see all this housing, and it's just you know it's all on the ridge, and it just looks horrible across the pond. Actually, where I live, uh, the view is so much better because there's no housing built on the ridge. <laughs> Yet on this side, you know, but if you go over to the other side, you could really definitely see all of the housing that has been built up there. And um, there has been discussion about, you know, the the bike trail might have caused some of the, um, um, you know, drainage to blow. But I, I think it's more the housing um and and so I am concerned about you know is you know the more housing the more drainage we're going to get you know am and, and I, am I going to be having to stop a river you know and I I still have problems on on you know uh you know on my on my grandma's land um uh yeah, a neighbor, you know, it's such a nice neighbor. He helped me direct the water flow away from the house because it was really hitting the northeast side of the house, you know, in the beginning of June. And it's not doing that anymore because we directed it away. But we really do need to do some, you know, heavy ditch work across the lawn to get to the culvert that the uh, public works um, just dug out and I'm so grateful for that honestly so I mean I do think that you know I just I just don't uh, you know, I don't want it to be a river. <laughs> and the problem is the, the 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 property directly above does have a river going leading to directly to the uh, my neighbor on the right side, and he's had to do a lot of work um, uh, to um, divert that uh, on his property. So. So there is issues still remaining, but I'm hoping that, you know, I, I, I will definitely update you about that. Um, and I look forward yeah. to the update. Tracy, last word very quickly before okay. I have to go. Okay. Um, and uh, and that that's basically it. Um, I, you know, I just, I just, uh, I, that, that that's pretty much it, Patty Doyle. I know you're busy on this show, and that I just wanted to update you, and I will update you further next year. Okay. I, pr- I appreciate that, and thanks for this this morning, oh. Tracy. Okay, thank you. And then also, you know, you said you would follow up with Paradise. I was just wondering on your end, did you did you find anything uh, from them? About, nothing more you know, than yeah, no, nothing more nothing. than you told us. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line two. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John Center. He's leader of the party. That's Jim Din. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Anytime. What's on your mind this morning? I just would like to respond to uh, Minister Studley uh, with regards to the uh, whole uh, round rank control. You and I have spoken about this on a number of occasions and a few things. She said it wouldn't result in more affordable rents, but I do believe it would uh, it would address the displacement um, of people who are now uh, looking for facing the alternative of either not be, not affording what they to put food on the table or looking for somewhere else or sleeping in the rough. It's interesting. This week passed. A year ago, I was telling you, I think, uh, that I was helping a person uh, who, was sleeping, who was sleeping in Pippi Park rather than go to the shelter. This year, this only last week, we were looking for Newfoundland Labrador housing to pay for someone to sleep in Pippi Park because they were in a tent. They had nowhere to go. We're finding a lot more people who are displaced. That's the first thing. Secondly, the need for more affordable housing, and somehow that the notion that rent uh, that rent control would scare off developers. Well, we don't have rent control right now, and we're not seeing the construction of anything close to affordable housing. We saw a measure last week in terms of reducing the cost to developers, and that's a start. That's one part of it. But we saw also had a news story last week of the super aid converting from a hotel to apartments. The minimum, uh, the lowest uh, uh, rent was $1,500. I will still say that's out of the reach of many people who are low-wage earners, minimum-wage jobs, people who are just trying to start off, you name it. It's out of reach. If anything else, I think coupled with um, coupled with investment in more non-market community-based housing, and I can think of several examples there that would at least uh, provide more affordable rents and affor- affordable housing for people who are in that category, and at least. Uh, between the two, stop the displacement until we get that uh, built, and then have a, a, a place where people can live and, and still be able to put food on the table. Otherwise, right now, Patty, the status quo is not working, and, and, it, and it's just it's just the number of calls coming into my office are increasing, and, and it's one thing if I can help them, it's just getting almost impossible to find them a place to go and, and to have to say to them, you're on the street. It, that's the part that's just tearing at me. The, I think the reality, financially speaking, is if it's not non-market housing, it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to achieve because yeah. input costs are out of control. Even incentives yeah. being announced with re- removing GST and maybe PST from affordable units is not going to make it affordable. If we're talking about low-income earners, minimum wage earners, that number isn't going to fluctuate a whole lot from 1500 bucks. It's no. just not. I mean, that's how the math is playing out here. I do wonder what the future looks like, though. When we talk about fast-tracking development, and everyone knows the housing crisis is a national issue, Rent control, vacancy control, with the need to fast-track units, market and non-market, I don't know if there's a perfect marriage to be had there. Uh, you know, it's interesting. We got When I was, when I was with St. Vincent de Paul, we got into uh, affordable housing. And at least here's, and here's how I look at that model. Look, there's, there's, a, there's room for that, and I think there's room for the uh, private development mar- market base for those who uh, can afford it. But I think for the most part, there are a lot of people here who just need a, 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 a decent, safe place to live. And the model does work because the, the focus is not on profit. And I understand the need for uh, 
private developers to make profit. But there are a lot of other organizations out there who will, uh, will whose primary focus is going to be on the people that they serve. And I think there's an opportunity, whether it's through the uh, the, community, the Cooperative Housing Association, Newfoundland and Labrador, whether it's through uh, uh, the other not-for-profits or um, use of government land that will be uh, donated to not-for-profits to build housing. I I think there 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 we need uh, need that approach because there are a lot of people here. Minimum wage is not keeping up with uh with with the cost of living. We just I just listened to the report on your radio about the uh, the food basket amount that's gone up. People are uh, people are are struggling between medication, food, and housing. So uh, right now, just to uh, just for Minister Studley more or less to say wouldn't work is basically accepting status quo, and that means uh, uh, that means we're going to be dealing with more people who are going to be sleeping in the rough this winter. She has admitted in her own email letters to me that she's aware of cases like this that in her district. I think, you know, uh, that's the first step towards, okay, where do we go in, in solving this problem? Getting the houses built is one thing, but right now we've got to make sure we keep people housed and, and, and keep them from being displaced. Simple as that. Jim, I appreciate it. They're asking me to get to a break on time as usual. Would you like to say anything else before I do go? No, it's uh, – uh, well, I know, and then I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I Look, in the end, I, the, I think since 2019 when I was first elected, I've seen the, uh, the housing uh, issue become more of a problem. You've heard me speak about it. I think it cannot be lost upon government. It cannot. I can't believe that they, they haven't heard this. Let's get on with move, doing it so that we're not looking at people sleeping out in this winter. I appreciate the time, Jim. Thank Thank you. you. Take care. It's Jim Dinn, the NDP member for St. John's Centre and the leader of the party. Break time. Last one of the morning. Christy's there to respond to Michael Plummer, who is a counsellor, psychotherapist. And then we're going to talk about Gender Equality Week, which is this week. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let us go. Where am I going here, David? Let's go to line number one. Okay, and say good morning to the minister responsible for women and gender equality. That's Pam Parsons. Good morning, minister. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and how are you? Not too bad, thanks. Good morning. I, good morning to you. I'm fine. How about you? Good, thank you. I'm just I'm happy to talk about Gender Equality Week. It's from September 17th to the 23rd, as you just outlined, and also that coincides with Consent Awareness Week uh, from September 18th to the 22nd. Um, so these are all these are things that you know we're going to be promoting this week, of course. Um, Gender Equality Week. This actually resulted, Patty, from a federal government's passing of the bill C-309, the Gender Equality Week Act, which happened back in June in 2018, and is designed annually to raise awareness, of course, of the importance of contributions of women and gender-diverse communities and what they've made and continue to make towards the growth and development and character of the identity of Canada. So this year's theme is United for Gender Equality, Stronger Together. And also, as you mentioned, oh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and in the world of equality and equity, they're not the same. They have similar characteristics. But one of the issues that has been pointed to regarding equality or equity is pay. And so inside of Bill 3, which was the Act Respecting Pay Equity for the Public Sector, there was pushback, you know, notably from the Federation of Labor, who joined forces with a variety of other organizations like the Equal Pay Coalition in Ontario. Talk about it ignores pay equity for women in the private sector, women working in women-dominated workplaces. Is there going to be a revisit of that bill to acknowledge where they think some of the shortcomings are? Well, as you are aware, this one comes in, in pieces. Uh, there's going to be it's, it's pay transparency was also included in this. 
uh, bringing in pay equity for the public sectors and the ABCs of government, if you will, the agencies. That, that part is in progress now. And, of course, the second part of this will be bringing in pay equity in the private sector. Um, and as you know, Patty, of course, consultation is required and needed, meaningful consultation. And we're always having these conversations open to ultimately put forth the best legislation that we can for people in the province. Um, you know, it's better late than never. I mean, we've never had pay equity legislation in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, but I'm happy to say now we do. And again, it's about tweaking that and, and making it better. But yes, those conversations are always ongoing. And I look forward, of course, to also advancing this and even bringing out that the second part of the pay equity for the private sector, which will require significant uh, feedback and consultation and working with our community partners, our stakeholders across Newfoundland and Labrador in, in, in the business world as well. So the department is committed to expanding it into the private sector? Absolutely. That was part of the legislation that was introduced. It's coming in sections. Um, as I said, the first was pay transparency and pay equity for public sector and government agencies. And the next leg of that will be looking at you know, consulting and bringing in for private sector pay equity. Yes, that commitment has been made. So this will be an ongoing document, if you will. Um, and again, and we, and we will require the consultation and the feedback for all stakeholders because ultimately this affects everybody here in our province. Business owners, individuals, uh, you name it, government. So it, it certainly is a collective, a collective effort. Inside the world of Consent Awareness Week, it does indeed coincide with Wellbeing Week. What do people need to know? Well, Consent, consent Awareness Week certainly is an opportunity uh, to reflect on and champion and celebrate consent you know, as a cornerstone for all types of relationships. And, Patty, not just for intimate relationships. Um, this week is also an opportunity to explore the valuable life skills related to consent, including how to, re to respond to rejection you know, and articulate boundaries, respect for body autonomy, and actively listen to others. And I mean, and the onus, Patty, is on each and every one of us, you know, to have these tough conversations, for our parents to have these conversations with their children, ultimately at a younger age. Um, we know through through education, through the K-12 to system, there are programs in place to teach about healthy relationships. And also through my mandate now as part of the National Action Plan to end gender-based violence, we're working with stakeholders where there's going to be programs uh, called the men and, you know, men and Boys, to ultimately teach, you know, about safe and healthy relationships and about consent. Um, so, you know, certainly, you know, if the onus is on each and every one of us at home, in our schools, in government, in our workplaces, you know, to promote and to educate on this very topic. Are there any specific events associated with both of these Awareness Weeks? Well, what we can do also, as you're aware, Patty, the Premier also launched, you know, Wellness Wellness Week. So anybody can, you know, certainly visit uh, Wellness NL to find these initiatives, to find the information, um, programs, and even personnel and officials that they can be directed to, you know, with specific questions or even initiatives. So, again, it's, it's, about, it's about having these conversations. It's about doing our part, you know, to, to be the healthiest that we can be through education and, and, through, and through conversation. Um, so that we have lots going on, Patty. Also, um, we will be having, I will be having a series of announcements actually um, rolling out this fall as part of we, we affirm the bilateral agreements with the federal government action plan uh, to end gender-based violence. So I'm happy to say that it, it's a multi-million dollar program over the course of 10 years. But obviously, we're kicking off the first five, so we've, we're going to have some significant funding um, to come to help our stakeholders here in Newfoundland and Labrador, you know, to, to make sure we have the best policy, policy and programming that are tailor-made here for Newfoundland and Labrador. I look forward to those announcements, and I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. 
Uh, one more thing, Patty, if I could, for my MHA hat. I'm happy to announce a new fire truck recently for the Harbor Grace Fire Brigade. Um, it's a cost of 150000 It's a high-angle rescue vehicle. So uh, hats off to all of our firefighters across Newfoundland and Labrador. And I'm really happy to be able to help, you know, secure resources for them, do the work that they need, of course, to protect our people and our community. So thank you for your time today, Patty. I appreciate yours. Thank you, Minister. Thank you. Take care. That's Minister Pam Parsons. She's responsible for women and gender equality. Final word this morning goes to line number three. Good morning, Christy. You're on the air. Hey, Maddie. How are you? Okay, this morning. How about you? I'm all right. Um, I was just listening to the call from Michael, the psychotherapist out in Bonavista, and uh, it struck a chord because it's um, counts- the subject of counselors and charging HST is something that I really pushed during the 2021 election looking for answers from the people who were running. And during the course of that, I heard from, actually the Premier told me on the steps of Confederation building after the election that it was something they were working on. And also I heard from counselors that they were working on being regulated and that's why they had to continue charging HST. But what I find extremely frustrating is that doorways, which is often, often talked about as offering mental health care, uses counselors as does wellness together. And I absolutely agree that counselors should be regulated. um, And I totally understand, especially after almost three years of advocating how slowly the government works. But as someone who uses the counselor, you know, they really got to look at this. I understand they say they're in the middle of it, but they told me they were close two years ago. And quite frankly, I think that the government and uh, deserves a failing grade on this because it really, really matters. I know if I hadn't been charged HST over the last few years, I could afford a lot more therapy that I need. And I know a lot of other people in the same boat. So I just, I'm calling to encourage the government and whoever's looking into this, Um, during wellness week which is being talked about a lot um, to look into this and see where the process is because I just think it's completely unacceptable that we are paying HST on something that the government is saying is mental health care in a different capacity. You know for me if we have all of the gaps that are well documented and understood there's a lengthy licensing process they have a national association but the move is to a, a formal regulatory body and how that could be you know encompassed with more and more private insurance and or public insurance it just seems to me that some of these things are right there in front of us and we're unable to grab them to try to make life a bit easier I don't know about the type of counseling and or psychotherapy that's offered how that dovetails or compares to social workers or psychologists or anybody else I don't know but if there's a nine-month licensing process for this particular gentleman moving from the states with years of experience you would think that this is another tool that we should have in our tool belt I could not agree more and I I often worry that you know there's people who are thinking that you know if we have more counselors and there won't be as much room for psychologists and if we have counselors there won't be as much room for psychotherapists and I just think that the need is so desperate that there is room for all of these professionals and we've got to get a move on to uh, figure this out. Well, 100%. And, you know, the people out there, whether it be 
advocates like yourself and your voice and your personal story and others who are willing to share theirs, hopefully what that results in is not only an erosion or further erosion of stigma, but hopefully a better understanding amongst elected officials about what the reality is and what can be done, what should be done, and the pace we're required for it. Because I think like many things, there's a lack of actual understanding that leads to some of these log jams and the timelines for making further steps forward. So you do great work, Christine. I always appreciate your contribution to this show. Well, thank you, uh, Patty. I know you've done a lot of talk about mental health and addictions over the past few weeks, which I appreciate. Um, so I just I wanted to add that. But you, I say it every time, but you are wonderful at what you do. So thank you. I appreciate it. Stay in touch, Christy. I will. Have All a right. good one, Patty. You too. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Wish we had more time with Chrissy. Always great caller. All right. Big thanks for everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.